Hi everyone. I trust that you are well and that you had a restful and blessed Heritage Day weekend. We continue with our sermon series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, listen, take to heart. And at the moment, we're looking at the seven letters that the Lord Jesus dictated to John and commanded him to send to the seven churches of Asia. These were literal churches that existed in an area that we know today as Turkey. So these letters are a record of a particular message that the Lord Jesus had for an individual congregation in a particular place 2,000 years ago. But of course, Jesus intended a broader application of these letters too. As we will see later in our study, the numbers in the book of Revelation are not statistics, but rather symbols. We know that there were more than seven churches in the province of Asia, and so the fact that Jesus particularly chooses seven of them is significant. Seven is the number of perfection. And so by choosing seven churches, Jesus is indicating that these churches symbolize the whole church of all time. And even if we didn't pick that up from the symbolism, in each letter, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There is a broad application to every congregation that has ever or will ever exist including our own. We come today to a letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Sardis, and which then also applies to ourselves. And I've asked Robin Meisner if she would read our passage today. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. To the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. I couldn't track down all the details precisely, but I remember years ago reading about a lady who got a letter from her insurance company that read as follows. We are unable to fulfill your request to receive your updated policy as our computer records show that you are dead. May God bless you. Should your situation change, please be sure to inform us immediately. In this letter, we are introduced to a church that Jesus says is dead. 
I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of a dead church. Perhaps you have a mental picture of a large, dimly lit and damp church building with just a few people, perhaps mainly elderly, scattered amongst the pews. Or perhaps of a run-down church building with broken windows and peeling paint. The church at Sardis was the exact opposite of that. It was the place to be on a Sunday morning. It attracted young families with its vibrant Sunday school and youth ministry. It had a multi-million rand budget, which it easily met each year. It had the very best in worship music, with gifted and enthusiastic worship leaders and musicians. On a Sunday night, you couldn't get the teenagers out of the place. They hung around in their hundreds, chatting away and drinking the best coffee. The other churches in the area would have been jealous of its reputation as a church that was with it and alive. Dead, says the Lord Jesus, who as the head of the church knows everything and whose judgment is 100% accurate and just. You are dead. The church may look fantastic, but its actual condition is as grotesque as a gaudily dressed and heavily made-up corpse in a funeral parlour. This church is busy and active. There is a lot going on. There is an exciting buzz around the place, but something is missing. In verse 1, Jesus says, I know your deeds. And then in verse 2, he says, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Jesus is not simply saying you never finish anything that you start. That's not his point. These deeds are not complete because there is an outward form, but not an inner reality. In one of his sermons, Pastor John Stott points out that this contrast between name and heart, between reputation and reality, between what is in the sight of God and what seems to be in the sight of people, between outward appearance and inward truth, this antithesis comes again and again in the pages of Holy Scripture. Think, for example, of God's word to the prophet Samuel when he was reviewing Jesse's sons, trying to figure out which one of them would become the next king. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Or think of God's complaint to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 29. These people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Outward form, but not an inner reality. As John Stott writes in his commentary, it is form without prayer, reputation without reality, outward appearance without inward integrity, show without life. The correct word for this behaviour is hypocrisy. The original word referred to an actor who plays a part on the stage, but the word came to be applied to any charlatan or pretender who assumes a role. Hypocrisy is make-believe. It is the let's pretend of religion. 
and hypocrisy can permeate the life of the church, especially its worship. We can sing the hymns led by choir and band or orchestra. We can recite the creed, say the confession and join in the prayers while our mind wanders and our heart is far from God. It makes no difference whether the service is liturgical or non-liturgical, whether it is marked by Catholic ritual or Protestant austerity or Pentecostal exuberance, the same unreality can be present. End quote. However, the main issue here is not primarily about churches. Our classic congregation tends to be a little more traditional and conservative, and it would be very easy for us to look around at some of the more enthusiastic and vibrant churches and comfort ourselves with the thought, ah, well, perhaps from God's perspective they are actually dead. <laughs> That's not the point. This isn't about judging other churches or judging our own church. It's about judging ourselves. Verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The question is not about other churches around me. It is far more personal than that. Do I have a spiritual vitality or am I effectively dead? I remember that there was a movie back in the 1980s, supposedly a comedy movie, where two young men had to pretend that their dead boss was in fact alive. It was pretty dark so-called humour, but they had to come up with all sorts of ways to make it appear that this corpse was alive. They had to tie his shoelaces to theirs and walk either side of him to make it look as if he were walking and tie strings to his arms so that he could wave at people passing by. It was grotesque. The character was going through all sorts of motions, but there was no life. And what about you? And what about me? To my shame, I would have to admit that there have been times, thankfully in the fairly distant past, where even as a pastor, I was simply going through the motions. It was easy to do church. After you've done 50 of them, you know how to prepare a sermon. After you've led 40 of them, you know how to pray in public. I could perform the outward actions, but there was little inner vitality, no vibrant relationship. And perhaps that's where you find yourself today. On the outside, you may appear to others to be alive. You may even have a reputation for being an active Christian. But the reality is that while on the outside, all the habits are there, inwardly you are dead. If that is so, then Jesus has a special message for you today. Verse 2. Wake up! <laughs> Having got your attention, it is, of course, much more gracious than that. But Jesus does want to get our attention. Jesus gives five short, sharp commands to his church in Sardis and to you and to me today. And these commands are an act of grace. In his book on Revelation, the Canadian pastor Darrell Johnson says this, Note the grace that the giving of commands implies. All is not lost. 
Jesus would not have commanded them to do anything if the death was final. Because of grace, we can begin again. The five commands are found in verses 2 and 3, where Jesus says, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. Although those are five separate commands, they are all interwoven, as we will see. And I'll change the order of the commands slightly, too, just for the sake of clarity. We've looked at the first command already, verse 2, wake up, which is probably better translated as keep watchful. Remember that Jesus had often urged his followers to be watchful. Matthew chapter 26, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Or Matthew chapter 24, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. This command to be watchful would have been particularly meaningful to the Christians in Sardis. You see, their city was built on a high hill with steep cliffs all around, and it seemed to be an impenetrable fortress. But twice in its history, Sardis had fallen to the enemy because of a lack of vigilance. In 549 BC, King Cyrus had deployed a solitary climber who had painstakingly worked his way up the perpendicular cliff and gained entrance to the city and opened its doors so the rest of the army could march in. And again in 216 BC, a small band of 15 men had made a similar daring climb to allow the armies of Antiochus the Great to enter the city. So these Christians knew the importance of keeping watch. And how about you? And how about me? In his farewell speech to the elders of the church in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, Paul said, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and said, Watch your life and doctrine closely. From time to time, we have to carefully examine our lives. And there is a warning for the church and for us if we're not watchful. Verse 3, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. We know this interesting picture of Jesus as a burglar, because Jesus used it on a couple of occasions to speak about his second coming. But the primary reference in these verses isn't to the second coming, but rather to Jesus' coming to his church in judgment. You see, the problem with being spiritually dead, just going through the outward motions of a relationship with Jesus, is that we don't know when the day of trouble might come, or the day of our death may come, or indeed the day of the Lord may come. On any and all of those days, the day we get fired from our job, or hit by a truck, or see Jesus face to face, we don't want to be in a state of spiritual death. Instead, we want to be alive to God, to have a vibrant, living relationship with Him. 
being watchful of our lives, taking a hard, close, honest look at what is going on, will probably lead us to notice some good things that need strengthening, as well as some bad things that we need to leave behind, which leads us to the next two commands. So, secondly, in verse 2, Jesus calls the church and us to strengthen what remains and is about to die. I think that the reference here must be to the outward actions of the Christian faith. The church at Sardis was very busy. Verse 1, I know your deeds. There is at least some value in outward religiosity. Uh, coming along to church and reading your Bible and praying before meals are meaningless in themselves and without a living relationship with Jesus will die but at least they are openings that invite us into that deep personal relationship. And so the Lord Jesus doesn't say, stop everything. Rather, he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Keep on coming to church and attending a small group and reading your Bible and praying, but strengthen those activities through a genuine, heartfelt relationship with me. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to strengthen the outward actions through an inner relationship. And we'll see more of what that means in the other commands. So, firstly, we're to be watchful. Secondly, to strengthen what remains through a genuine relationship. Thirdly, although it's mentioned last, Jesus calls us to repent. Remember that to repent simply means to turn around, to stop going in that direction and doing those things, and instead to go in this direction and do these things. And this is important because there are many in the church at Sardis who were involved in some form of sin. In verse 4, Jesus says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, which of course means that there were many in Sardis who had soiled their clothes, who were involved in some sort of sin. It was probably the idolatry and the sexual immorality that characterized the other churches in Asia. But whereas in Pergamum and Thyatira this idolatry and immorality had been blatant and outward, there were well-known teachers who were advocating it, Within the church at Sardis, this sin was hidden and secretive. One of the reasons for spiritual deadness in our lives is due to our harboring secret sins. That we come before God in worship on Sunday and proclaim, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. And yet we go away and engage in very different behaviours during the week. And say with the wicked in Psalm 94, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob takes no notice. 
there's a disconnect between the two which leads to spiritual deadness, just going through the motions. And what we need then is an integration of those two parts of our personalities, a realization that although I am more sinful than I ever thought, I am more loved than I ever dreamed. And so if today you are harboring secret sin, I encourage you to come out into the light, the light and the love of God's truth, to receive help from others and forgiveness from God. Repent. Be watchful, strengthen what remains, repent. And fourthly, in verse 3, Jesus commands us to remember. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. John Stott again writes, the shortest road to repentance is remembrance. Let someone once recall what they used to be and reflect on what by God's grace they could be and they will be led to repent, turning back from their sin to their saviour. And there are two things that we are told to remember. First, Jesus says we are to remember what we have received. A number of Bible commentators have pointed out the fact that the word received is most often used in relation to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Think of that famous passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Also, Jesus introduces himself in verse 1 by saying, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We know that the seven stars represent the messengers of the churches, and in fact the churches themselves, and these seven spirits, does this mean that there are seven Holy Spirits? No, again, the number is symbolic, representing completeness. William Barclay captures the sense of this phrase in his commentary on this passage. He writes, there are seven churches, yet in each of them the Spirit operates with all his presence and with all his power. In each of them, his presence is equally full and equally complete. The seven spirits signifies the completeness of the gifts of the spirit and the universality of the presence of the spirit. So we are to remember what we have received, that is, God's Holy Spirit. And all of us receive God's Holy Spirit the moment we become Christians, it's astonishing, really, that the Holy Spirit of God is prepared to take up residence in our dark and foul hearts. But he does. We have this immense treasure within us. But we also have a sinful human nature, too. And so there is this civil war within us. It's possible, therefore, for us to quench the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19 or to grieve him, Ephesians 4, verse 30. Instead, the New Testament urges us to keep on being filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18, and to keep in step with the Spirit, 
Galatians 5, verse 25. That may involve an emotional experience, but being filled with the Spirit is also an act of the will. What we have to do, according to Galatians chapter 5, is to keep on sowing to the Spirit, engage in activities that keep us connected to God's Holy Spirit, worship, Bible reading, meeting with God's people at church, prayer, fasting. We're to sow to the Spirit, and at the same time we are to starve our sinful nature. We are not to engage in activities that will feed our natural human nature. It is the Spirit who brings light to what otherwise are just outward actions. So we're to remember the Spirit whom we have received, and also we are to remember what we have heard. This seems to be a reference to the Scriptures themselves. Remember again that the primary way in which the Holy Spirit speaks to us is through the Scriptures that he has inspired. There are two verses in the New Testament that are virtually identical, and the parallelism teaches us something very important. So in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. And in Colossians chapter 3, he writes, Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. In other words, there is the closest possible link between the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. We mustn't create a dichotomy between the Word and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to us and ministers to us primarily through the Scriptures. And that leads us then to the final important command. We are to be watchful, to strengthen what remains, to repent, to remember what we have received and heard. And then fifthly, Jesus commands us to obey. Verse 3. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it. Not merely remember what we've heard, but obey it. Probably the best commentary on hearing and obeying comes to us from the little book of James in the New Testament, chapter 1, where James writes, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. We keep on being filled by the Spirit by listening to his voice through the Scriptures and obeying what he tells us to do. So be watchful, strengthen what remains, repent, remember what we've received and heard, and obey. We said that these commands were an act of grace, that grace allows us to start all over again. But there is another final note of grace in this passage too. Although this is the one letter in which Jesus has no commendation for his church, in verse 5 there is still a threefold promise
promise to those who overcome. The one who overcomes will be dressed in white. I will never blot out that person's name from the book of life, but will acknowledge their name before my Father and his angels. White is a symbol of purity and sinlessness, and it's clear that these white robes are given not because of any good that we have done, but because of the good that has been done on our behalf by Jesus. And in that sense, we join the great cloud of witnesses in chapter 7, who we read have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. One day, we will stand before God's glorious presence, faultless and with great joy. Our names will never be blotted out of the book of life. The sentence contains a double negative so that Jesus literally says, I will never by any means blot that person's name from the book of life. We have a relationship with Jesus that is permanent and eternal. And third, Jesus repeats the promise that he made to his disciples when he was on earth. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. In his book on Revelation, Daryl Johnson writes this. The lesson of Jesus' message to Sardis can be summarized in the phrase, always on the brink. Every congregation and every individual disciple is always on the brink of losing authentic spiritual life. Why are we always on the brink? Because of the nature of the Christian life. Because of the dynamics of the life into which Jesus Christ calls us. It is a life that can only be lived in relationship, in relationship with Jesus through his Holy Spirit. It is a life we cannot live apart from him. It is a life we cannot sustain in and of ourselves. It is a supernatural life that requires regular supernatural resources. Drift out of or ignore or cut the relationship and the life drains away. One of my favorite analogies for the Christian life is water skiing. What do we need to water ski? Just a few basics, skis, a rope and a boat. The color of the boat is irrelevant. So is its style. The rope need not be the finest, just durable enough to keep us attached to the boat. As long as I hold on to the rope, I will be able to ski. But drop the rope and it is over. And here is the hitch. For a few seconds, it appears that I can go on without the boat. If the boat is going at top speed when I drop the rope, I might even stay on the surface for 30 or 40 yards. It looks good. But in the end, I sink. We are always on the brink of going down, of losing authentic life. And so in this week that lies ahead, let's keep watchful over our lives. Let's strengthen the outward habits and patterns of our Christian life through an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus through his Holy Spirit. Let's repent where we have harbored sin in our lives. 
Let us remember what we have received, the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. Let us remember what he has said to us through his word. And then let us be those who hear and obey. Amen.